Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a new semi-regular segment of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Joining me here in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is outspoken proponent of Mother Ease, Trey Jones. <laughs> hey, everybody. To his left is wealthy hair and makeup consultant, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from a bed and breakfast in war-torn Afghanistan, Bill Spruill. Hey. Thanks for joining us. All right, for now, let's uh, hear some more lies, damn lies, and linguistics from Trey Jones. You guys should all be used to the drill by now, but I'll give you a quick rundown one more time. I'm going to read you three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one of them is fiction, though the fictitious one is based on something. Each of you will have to talk yourself into a choice about which one is false, and uh, when you're done, I'll tell you a little bit more about them, and we'll figure out which one is is the lie. And we've been keeping score from podcast to podcast, and right now, Bill has a commanding lead, two correct out of three tries, with... uh, Keith and David both only having one correct out of three. I'm coming back. Okay, here we go. So, number one. No one seems to know how many vowels there are in Marshallese, the language of the Marshall Islands. Some analyses indicate three. The writing system uses nine. Other analyses say 12 or even 24. Number two. A recent survey conducted in 18 countries in Europe has led to the identification of a genetic marker that is weakly associated, but to a statistically significant degree, with the inability to perform certain trills. Number three. The natural language Ket of Siberia is so irregular that it appears to have been created by a mad conlinger. In 1968, a Russian linguist claimed that every verb in the language is irregular. There was no word whether or not it's the whole verb paradigm or just the elative dual. All right, who wants to go first? (laughs) I'm going last. Y'all pick it up. I'll take a stab at it, I guess. Uh, Number one, I am willing to believe the statements about Marshallese because part of this is that some linguists say there are 12 or even 24 vowels. Some analyses indicate three. I'm perfectly willing to believe that range of variation in linguist theories about Marshallese. I mean, that that makes perfect sense. Uh, Number two, the recent study leading to that marker with the trills thing, I I'm suspicious about the Europe part because given the history of Europe in the early modern period, any difference that would result in some Europeans pronouncing things differently probably would have gotten them enthusiastically killed by their neighbors. And that would have been that the end of that genetic marker. Number three, the idea that there's a language that it's so irregular it appears to have been created by a mad conlanger. Well, there's plenty of languages in that category. Uh, the idea that a linguist could claim every verb in the language is irregular, yeah, I believe that too, especially if, 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 he, if he or she was tacking on null affixes. So I'm going to say number two is the one that's not true. Well, let me go next. Because uh, I want to give the same answer that Bill did. Number one is undoubtedly true because it is a fact about analyses, not Marshallese. And uh, as Bill says, any range of variation there is plausible. Number three is undoubtedly true because of the geographic isolation of Ket, way out in the middle of nowhere in Siberia. The history of linguistics shows us that languages that are highly isolated geographically must have multiple relationships to many other language families around the world. And so we could expect that there would be a tremendous history of language contact and bizarre changes. (laughs) leading to strange irregularities. But number two is clearly false because the claim here hasn't even bothered to tell us what species is being talked about. So there's some genetic marker that's associated with some kind of inability to perform trills, but that that just has a ring of falsehood there. 
<laughs> so dogs are very bad at trills. That's your claim, eh? All right. I'm, <laughs> I'm going last, and I know that, well, let me put it this way. Either the third one is false, or I'm never going to trust Trey again for the rest of my life. Because not only is there mention <laughs> of a Conla here in that, but there's also a mention of the elative duel, which figures very prominently into my article on the Xotre language, where the elative duel was just the most, the most commonly used case number combination in the entire language. And if some other language did that, well, then I think I just have to basically doff my hat to it and then walk into the sea and never come out again. So there you have it. I think set up. <laughs> yeah, you were you were set up a little there, David. So everyone agrees that the first one is in fact true yeah. about Marshallese, and that is true. You bet. And I really don't have anything else to say about it other than I actually have a book on Marshallese, which was hand delivered to me from the Marshall Islands by a friend who worked there as a meteorologist for several years. Truthfully. So- I'm going to email you my address, and then you can mail that thing to me. Oh, no, it's mine. (laughs) Just in case she's listening. Hi, Mary. Number three, the natural language Ket of Siberia. Now, this analysis was done 40 years ago, and there may be a new analysis since then, but it it is true. Um, It's got to be pretty ugly. And uh, that was just editorializing there, David. I didn't really expect it to sway your judgment. Um, (laughs) Give me a break. Does it even have an elative case and a dual number? Probably not. I just, that was just a a joke I (laughs) stuck in there. That was just being a a well-timed joke. (laughs) Fine, all right. You know what's a problem when people are making elative of dual-based joke. <laughs> All right, yeah, like I know, I know what to think about you. bad for your social life. Yeah, I know what to think about you from now on. I got that. I got All that. Right. I, can't, right. I can't wait to see the letters that pour in about elative duels after this. <laughs> I know we just pissed off the entire elativist group on Facebook, I think. <laughs> That's all right. They're all elative vetists. Parse that. Anyway, go on. Tell us why number two is false, you punk. Okay, so number two is, in fact, false. I apparently didn't make it tricky enough, and Bill figured it out, and then either Keith figured it out or is just writing on Bill's coattails. But this is one of those things that uh, just drives me crazy. I've had biologists tell me, oh, yeah, there's a gene, and if you don't have it, you can't trill your R's. And it's like, it just really frustrates me to think that biologists would be so bad at their at their own specialty that they wouldn't realize that there's no chance that there are huge swaths of the American public who are phenotypically normal with totally normal speech, but just can't trill R's. And, now, um, now, now, to stop you for a second on uh-huh. that, mm-hmm. all right, is what they actually said there's a gene combination that would prevent people from trilling R's? No, I just totally made this one up. People just <laughs> because, I mean, It, it had a ring of made-upness to yeah. it. Well, you know, any gene that would produce, for example, spontaneous miscarriage before you were even born would prevent you from doing drills. That's true. And there are probably an infinite number of genetic combinations that would do that. Yes, but not in people who have otherwise normal speech. Okay. And there are also there are people who... genetic markers. But the idea is that so many people who can't trill ours just say, oh, I can't do it because it's genetic. And like, interesting, nobody like that's ever born in Mexico. What is that? Or South America. <laughs> Now the scores stand. Uh, Bill, three out of four. Keith, two out of four. And David, one out of four. Uh, Way to go, David. All right. I'm going to get you. You just wait. (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, thank you very much, Trey, for humiliating me on air. I love it. I'm going to look forward to more. All right. We've got some language news for you. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. They're people, too. All right, we're back. 
First up, we have news from Science Daily from March 15th. Neuroscientists at University College London have found what they claim to be a significant difference between the brains of trained phoneticians and regular folk, or、uh, normies, as I believe they prefer to be called. Apparently, there's a section of the brain, the left pars opercularis. Don't tell me that I pronounced that wrong, or I'll get you. That corresponds to the number of years of phonetics training a professional has had. But then there's this other area, the left auditory cortex, which is similar among phoneticians and differs from normies. This area apparently forms during gestation and doesn't increase in size much at all during a human being's normal lifespan. And so, if these results have any meaning whatsoever,、uh, certain mothers may be producing babies who are born to be phoneticians. All right, first question on everyone's mind: Will doctors be able to determine if a fetus in the womb is likely to possess this peculiar brain pattern? And will the fruits of stem cell research allow parents to repair this abnormality before their potential phoneticians is born? Keith. Well, that's a great question you raise, but it's not the first one on my mind.、Uh, I really want to, you know, skip all the theoretical implications of this study and go straight to a different application, and that is,、uh, I want one of these technicians on my staff next time I teach phonetics because it would just be tremendously easier to run the tests and then base the grades on those. I wouldn't. We'd be able to predict success of the students. We wouldn't have to actually measure it, and then we would be able to pursue our normal curriculum with no pressure. It would be. Very relaxed. We could probably expand that to the other disciplines as well. I'm guessing.、Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, for, first of all, we could probably map out the brain so that we can find which part of the brain corresponds to which subfield of linguistics, and then you know, assign grades and careers,、uh, you know, accordingly, and then maybe even get further, and then just separate out right at birth when they're in the womb. Just give everybody their specialty, so that basically, you know, if you're you're born a janitor. And then you will just be happy the rest of your life being a janitor. This has got to this has got to be able to make us money somehow. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't know how you're going to get just, from just, just just a second there though. I feel compelled to point out that all the study really does is find some correlations. So the phoneticians in the sample had a larger whatever that was than the other than the other subjects did, but they didn't really check. Other groups of people that have certain behaviors similar to those of phoneticians, like alcoholics. Like、uh, I was thinking, well, one possibility. <laughs> well, you, you have to go outside of linguistics. What are the other things phoneticians do? They immobilize people. They point things at their heads. You know that type of thing. And so <laughs> they could check interrogators, for example.、Oh. Do interrogators have the same structure? How about just portrait photographers? They make People sit perfectly still, and they sit still, and they point equipment at people's heads. But they、um, tell people to smile. That's quite different. Well, they、mm. do, but I've seen phoneticians do that too. Is that really different from telling someone to, you know, smile versus produce a high front vowel? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, more lips, lips unrounded. Yeah, it's just what you call it, right? <laughs> so I think, as with most things in this field, lots more studies need to be done. Now, I think you left out one important group there:、uh, snipers. They point things at people's heads, and、that's、after、true. they after、that's、they point、true. them, they're very still. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Actually, that's now true. that I think about it, the further that we get, you know, away from the the dark ages, the more the more professions are dedicated to you know people standing, asking people to sit perfectly still, and pointing some sort of equipment at them. Exactly. Exactly. This thing could explode. Just edit out that silence. Apparently, exploited and killed everyone. <laughs> Literally. <laughs>
Well, that's something else to check, though. Another ability phoneticians have is to make people self-conscious and stop conversation. Mm. <laughs> and so there may actually be, it, it's kind of like projective autism. <laughs> <laughs> communicable, so, communicable autism. Well, yeah, instead of you evincing autistic behaviors, you kind of cause everyone around you to. And so they could look for that kind of correlation. In fact, in this case, it might be kind of previously unknown dimension on the autism spectrum, the autistic disorder spectrum. Well, so that would be common to all linguists then. Um, yes. They're always stopping people in the street. Frankly, except, think you get except, an argument there. Except Deborah Tannen. I don't well, think it'll apply that's there. That's true. <laughs> So one thing that I was wondering, this is kind of building on something that you said, Bill. Was it Bill or Keith? You know, I'm sorry. You guys all sound alike to me. But was <laughs> something that something that one of you two said, probably, what they just found here is, hey, this part of these guys' brains is slightly larger than, these, you know, than the other guys. It seems like if you're looking at a picture of a brain, pretty much anybody can point that out. So th these guys are getting paid to do this? And are they really professionals? And really, what is an MRI except getting somebody to hold perfectly still and then kind of pointing a machine at them. Perhaps it's not just phonetics, but fMRI studies that this area of the brain helps to expand. And they're just trying to get more staff in their labs. You know, Bill, it was Bill that said that all they've done is find a correlation. But well, if you say so, Bill. Bill, you have to remember that correlations are always predictive in the sense that if you find one, it's predictable that you'll be able to publish. <laughs> That's a point. That's a point. Look, you know, I think we should just let the phoneticians have this one because it's probably the only time they're ever going to be able to say that they've proven that they're genetically superior to syntacticians. <laughs> well, they've just proven that they're genetically different but not superior. Right. I said they could say it. I didn't say it was true. <laughs> okay. <Yes. laughs> All right. Fantastic. Okay, let's turn our attention to some rather unsettling news. Deb Roy a steward in the stronghold of Lord Chomsky has just presented to the world over 200,000 hours of audio and video recordings of his young child. From the moment his son was born until he was about three or four years old, uh, Debroy's son's every movement and every sound was being recorded by about a dozen cameras and microphones. The purpose was to tease out the birth of language in the mind of an infant. So basically, this is a total invasion of personal privacy. But I say that's a small price to pay for finally being able to say how for certain language works in the brain. I think that, you know, as students of language, we can all agree to that, right? Oh, certainly. Dude, this makes me really nervous, man. They made it all cute and interesting by discussing the acquisition of water in a little boy, but all that big data mining behind it and the demo of tracking how media affects conversation, all that stuff's really scary. We all know the NSA regularly talks about how they have over-the-horizon technology, so the best of whatever they're letting us see, the NSA has stuff that's, that's orders of magnitude better. So if Deb Roy can process several years' worth of data, what do you think the NSA can do? So now they have this ability to track and manipulate the media and even personal conversations, and it has to be light years ahead of this big brotherish demo that we saw in that TED Talk. I think all these things are just, you know, components that are leading to systematic desensitization of the populace to being observed and living life in public. So this is, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and reality TV. The next thing that's coming, I think, is going to be some dystopian version of David Brin's transparent society where everybody's watching everybody else, except uh, it'll just be the man watching us. 
This is exactly the kind of thing that anybody with a background in machine learning would see as a way to do experiments to encourage or discourage uh, the spread of an idea or a topic of conversation. So, you know, they can they can run tests like how do we get more people to talk about Miley Cyrus and fewer people to talk about Lindsay Lohan? And how do we get people to conflate Paris Hilton with Perez Hilton? And how many times can you get people to say Snooky? And testing on celebutards makes tons of sense because people who follow that crap have the attention span of a gnat. And so it makes it easy to reset the system to run the next experiment. And from there, you just standard NLP techniques take you to mass control of the thoughts and conversations of the majority of the people or the sheeple, or at least enough of them to win elections. So, dude, I'm telling you, this is like, holy crap. Now, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, and the 2010 elections all make sense. I got to get out of here. I need to see a guy about an augmented tinfoil hat and quick. Okay, listen, before you go anywhere, there was an episode of Moesha that really was just like what you were saying. And this is what I learned from that episode. Basically, and really, I'm speaking to Keith and Bill and everybody else listening right now, not really to you, Trey, though you can listen along if that's your real name. If what you're saying is true, then they know what you've just said. In fact, not only that, it's more than likely that everything that you just said was actually said by them to discredit your own theory. So in other words, Dude. they put the truth in your mouth to make it sound that implausible. Think about it. Now, it doesn't really matter how you respond to this, trade because at this point, I am pretty well convinced that you are just an agent of the shadow organization. And anything that you say is going to be exactly what you should be saying so that we interpret that as basically not... Oh, gra oh great. Now, I, now I'm lost. Wait a minute. Okay, okay. Bill, am They're I They're changing actually, the script yes? on you, man. Am I actually a part of the shadow organization? I was just reading that article and thinking, this poor guy, he's going to get, you know, he's going to start dating later. And his girlfriend's going to say, everything you said was just kind of like an elaboration of something you said when you were four. It's all derivative. And then the guy's going to be all ups. You know, it's like, poor dude. And so that was my major insight about the article. And then you start coming up with the whole plot thing and... So you're trying to discredit me. Is that what you're doing? You're trying to well, say that what I'm just saying was ridiculous. I don't They're monitoring the whole internet, man. Now you've got me sitting here wishing I had never seen Blade Runner. But that, that happens frequently, frankly. So that's not that unusual. I have a question about something that was actually in this article. Sorry, there was an article? Yeah, if I might bring that up. There's a fascinating quote here, and I wondered if any of you, particularly Trey, who has some background in word processing or something, maybe you could explain <laughs> this to us. One of the things that Deb Roy says is, and I'll read this, my research team went on to develop deep machine learning algorithms to discover semantic connections within the video and audio data. I wonder if anybody could explain what deep machine learning algorithms might refer to if it's something in the real world. That's serious business. It means that it's too complicated. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. <laughs> um, we're not going to show you because if we explained it to you even briefly, you would understand how to recreate it yourself. Does deep mean that we're not going to bother to write a paper about it? Hmm. Um, hmm. Not necessarily, but they won't really give you enough information for you to be able to do it yourself. And then you'll think, wow, this is hard. It must be deep. <laughs> One thing I noticed about the article is that you get evidence at a number of points that Roy probably is not a linguist. Mm -hmm. One of those is 
the phrase uh, that he uses actually fairly early on in the article where he talks uh, about the history of child language research and refers to it as being based on, quote, surprisingly incomplete observational data, unquote. First of all, the fact he's surprised by that shows he's not a linguist. (laughs) True enough. Number two, the juxtaposition of the word observational with the word data. is a dead giveaway here. Okay. So before we start getting sort of too fixated on the effect that this research will have on linguistics, I think we ought to take a step back and say, will linguists notice it? Well, I think right. it, I think the really the appropriate response of any linguist who's been working in acquisition for many years is simple. I mean, they have the data there, but really, I mean, all of it's just performance error. You just have to throw that right out. I mean, this is only one kid they're recording. I That's mean, true. Not uh, statistically significant. No, no, not even not even a little bit. Anything that he possibly says or does could never be of any importance to anyone. At least that's what I would say if I were a linguist and my job was on the line. Makes sense. Uh, Anthropologists might notice this, but linguists won't. Speaking of which, on the video, I don't know if, uh, if you noticed this, but you remember one of the things that he demonstrated was every instance of his boy saying water over, gosh, what was it, uh, three months? Like, no, I think it was like six, two years. I said six months. Was it two? No, I think it was six months. It was a period of time. Yeah, over a period of time. Um, and then it was, was it 40 seconds? I think he put them all in 40 yeah. seconds. He said. So it started off as gaga, ended up as water. What I noticed is that there was lots of variation right in, you know, all, all the way through, lots of gagas, and then it pretty much sounded like gaga with little bits thrown in in between, all the way up to the exact last one that was suddenly water. Did anybody else have that reaction? Yeah, and it also sounded like the kid went through puberty just before that last one. (laughs) (laughs) You know what this is? This is them trying to control how much we talk about Lady Gaga. Ooh. Yeah, actually, I was I was taken aback when he said that Gaga became water. I expected it to become daddy or doggy or uh, phone booth. Well, well, you know, it's possible the whole Lady Gaga phenomenon was just created to predispose us to react to the study differently. Mm, just prom- just prompting us or priming us, as it were. Right, right. It's a good idea. It's an excellent marketing idea. Mm. Anyway, well, personally, I just kind of thought, you know, as we sat there and watched him on stage, personally, I thought he was a little bit too proud. I mean, he's a dad, but come on. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I, I think everybody eventually learns to take their first two steps. <laughs> and to say water. And to say water. Most of us master that. You know, a lot more people learn to walk than learn to say water. That's true. Do the math. It's gotten a lot easier now that you don't have to trill the R at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. If you're even able to genetically. Right, right. Uh, all right, that'll do it for language news. Now another word from our sponsor. Have you ever had a problem where you can't find the words you're looking for? Well, listen, I, I, I got a whole box of them. I got them stored. They're safe. If you want them, you're going to want to talk to me. I can get them for you at real decent prices. Now, I, I put this ad in here because I heard you're always interested in, in words and things like that. So uh, you just you call these people and you ask for Harold. You're going to want to talk to me. I promise you that. 
All right, we're back. Now for a new segment that we call Words of Wisdom with Lady Fan Todd. And to introduce us to Lady Fan Todd and her words of wisdom, Bill Sproul. Well, I was back at headquarters earlier last week, so I went through the mailbag to get the, the questions that people have been sending in for Lady Fan Todd. And I did manage to ke- catch her in the coffee room on basically last Thursday before you sent me off again. I picked just the top letter we had, and she did have a response to it of sorts. The question that was sent in was, my office mate believes in the DP hypothesis, and he keeps insisting I do, too. But I just don't accept the existence of omnipresent invisible categories. How do I get some distance without hurting his feelings? There are more things in heaven and earth, dear child. I shall never forget that plenary session at the 1926 LSA meeting when Teddy Sapir turned out all the lights and had us all join hands round the table. None of us really believed anything would happen, but suddenly there came an eerie knocking sound from behind the coffee urn. Is anyone there? Teddy asked, and right before our eyes, he materialized an invisible category. Somebody screamed. Next moment, there were determiners everywhere, swooping over our heads. An earth rolled up my leg. Poor Otto Jasperson got a dust caught in his hair and fainted from terror. It was all terribly thrilling. Well, that was fantastic. All right, now it's time to dust off the old Twitter feed and see what tweeters are tweeting about and to the thousands of professionals that are responsible for bringing the world language made difficult every so often. First up, this is from Living Tongue at Specgram. Hey, liked your show. Needs more explosions, PLX. I think that means please. Are there any public domain explosion noises? Because... We could throw in some to make them happy. Well, either that or we could just blow up some of the grenades that we have in, in in the artillery shelter. I hate to tell you this, but we don't have those anymore. But what happened to them? <laughs> he could tell you, but he'd have to kill you. Oh, great. Maybe we could apply for a grant from the Endangered Languages Armamentation Project. Mm, they certainly do have the stockpiles hanging around. They They just have the money. <laughs> All right, next up, this comes from Lambda Linda at Specgram. Uh, Hart Claude Sears Plane Pockets. Where does he live? Is he single? And then there's one of those winking smiley faces at the end. So, our friend Claude Sears Plane Pockets is uh, no longer single. Uh, he married his lovely wife, Helga, after they corresponded in the pages, the letters pages of Specgram. Uh, as for where he lives, if, if someone wanted to stalk him, he's actually always in the field. The both of them together are always, always in the field. So, alas, uh, he's off the market. Little broken hearts just litter the linguistic landscape as a result. And I'd also point out to anyone attempting to stalk him that he does also have grenades. <laughs> Oh, gosh. If he, if he would only come back to headquarters, we could borrow a few of his. But, yes, permanently out. Just like you should be, Bill. I'm really disappointed to hear that you came back. Stay away. There's a reason you're not here laughing. I managed four whole days before someone sent me off again. Uh, who is letting Athanasius do the duty roster? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, we, we have another one here from, looks like, uh, Jane Cook Fan 420. Uh, LOL at Specgram sucks. You guys ain't even on TV. Hashtag epic fail. Hashtag winning. Anybody who's a fan of Dane Cook uh, really just doesn't get a, an opinion as far as I'm concerned. So let's don't bother to respond to that. I'm actually surprised they found our podcast. Oh, well, takes all kinds, I suppose. Okay, uh, last one we got here. This is Cali Girl 789 OMG, I love your music at Specgram. You make the day worth living. Okay, you know what? Uh, this one I'm pretty sure is just a typo. There's a band out there, a new indie band called Spectacular Glam. Um, and sometimes their fans refer to them as Spec Glam. This one probably was supposed to go to Spec Glam and not to us, unless uh, anybody's been making music uh, on the side. There's or, music or on it's... some of the podcasts. Oh, no, not really. It Really? There are musical numbers on there, the site. There are two songs in the podcast. This is true. Oh, that's true. I was thinking it might be some high-concept thing where the writer's thing that some of our periods of silence are actually some kind of Cajun musical music. statement. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe they meant that our podcast is music to their ears. It's just like a null allotune or something. <laughs> null allotune. I like it. Uh, all right. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of Twitter. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Tune in next time when we discuss Justin Bieber's scathing indictment of recent optimality theoretic analyses of pronoun resolution in Swedish. Thanks for listening. All right, we're out. Um, so when are we doing this next time? Uh, May 8th? It's a Sunday? Uh, uh, the, the League of Evil Syntactician Seminar on Keeping Down the Uppity Phonologist is then? I can't make that. Um, you didn't tell I me can't that. Make that. Oh, I have a faculty meeting that day. You have a faculty meeting on yeah, Sunday? Oh, well, it's, yeah, I'm afraid we do that day. Yeah. What about the so, following Tuesday? What about the following Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday. I will still be in quarantine. <laughs> oh, right. okay. oh, no, I have a faculty meeting that day, too. Actually, we have a faculty meeting that whole week. <laughs> Come on, man. Now, okay, first of all, quit your job. Secondly, I think that this is a little bit more important than whatever it is you do wherever it is you work. Um, in an auto, is it an auto parts store? What do you do? No, it's a, it's a linguistics department. We, um, I, you know, we, we teach linguistics. Uh, do you teach linguistics or linguists? Uh, yeah, well, some of each. So what about the following Thursday? Uh, Thursdays I cannot do because those are my sleep days. I only sleep one day a week. It's Thursday. <laughs> I think you submitted several articles on a Thursday then. Anyway, um, how about Friday? <laughs> Uh, Friday. I'll probably be having a reaction to the new vaccinations. But then, because that, that, that could play, did, did might you be look, funny. Did you look at the duty roster? No, I never look at those because I'm not on it. Eight, are, are you scheduled eight, for another trip, Bill? Four of them, and Athanasius <laughs> is up to something. I, I can't. I go somewhere where I don't need new shots. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I, I thought I was going to get a break when they sent me to Manitoba, but it turned out they sent me someplace I needed shots. Uh, well, just just a second here. Um, I'm, what kind of shots do you need for Manitoba? I I'm, don't know. They were Canadian. Uh, I'm taking a look, and it looks like... Um, uh, have you been to Vanuatu before? No. Uh, That's where you're going. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. 
uh, and they got this fantastic new disease. You're really going to love it. But yeah, you're going to need some shots for that, buddy. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the worst part of the thing is I don't even think these diseases I'm getting the shots for are very common. It's just Athanasius thinks they are. So he puts them down on the that form you have to turn in. And you're he, really he did mention something sport. to me about trying to set a world record for the most vaccinated man. I thought he was talking about himself. Yeah, but it's never going to be No, young. no, shh, Trey, shh, No, Bill, it's required by our insurance. Oh, right. <laughs> the lawyers keep telling us, if you're going to travel, you got to get the shots. And it was, and they meant you, Bill. Any of us can also travel and do what we will with our bodies, but you, they really feel uncomfortable about you leaving the country without your shots. You're very I valuable. Think Athanasius leaves to leave, needs to leave his office occasionally. I, why can't he do this? Granted, he's paranoid, but well, he's got I, the most comfortable sofa. Well, that's point. That's a fact. Oh, I love that sofa. I kill for that sofa. Oh, kill all I'm saying sofa. is, I better get some overtime on this. <laughs> <laughs> is he serious? Overtime? We, we've got you crossing the international dateline in such a way that you actually have to work that Saturday twice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Plus the transit time.